The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Both is that one of the really supportive conditions for feeling warmth with someone, friendship towards someone, open to them, connected to them, um, compassion for them, caring for them, all those things, all different things, is uh, proximity. It's simply that you're willing to be, to be physically close, close to them, so you take them in. Um, I, you know, even something as simple as at the checkout counter in a supermarket, you know, to, to be close enough to take the person in, as opposed to looking at, you know, around or reading the National Enquirer or, you know, whatever you could be doing, but to take time to be close, take time to be, be with someone. And not much is needed beyond that. It's amazing how much can happen. When you, all, that's all you do. And some people are very shy to do that. They're reluctant for many reasons to make eye contact, to be in someone's close presence, to take time to really be and take someone in. Um, but it's not a rocket science to bring yourself close to someone and see what happens, discover what happens in the closeness. And I think much of our shared humanity and the goodness of our humanity will come off and forth when we just allow ourselves to get, you know, simply close to people and take them in and be connected. So I said that before the sitting because we also do that for ourselves. And so mindfulness is to be close to ourselves, to be connected to ourselves. Um, and wonderful things happen when we just bring ourselves and feel connected and be present for ourselves in a fuller, complete way. And many people don't really connect to themselves that much. They're often in their heads and thinking about other things. But mindfulness is a time, meditation is a time to turn the attention away from all the external things, all the fantasies and ideas and futures and past, and turn it in, in a sense, so you can be connected, be close to what's here, most, the person who you're most intimate with. So let's uh, sit for a little while and then I'll do a little guided reflection here in this body and mind, present for yourself, breathing in and breathing out.
offer you a question and then engage in the question, see what you can come up with. You don't have to do a lot of thinking, you can just keep asking the question and see what bubbles up as answers. Or you can pick up it as a topic of actually thinking about it and reflect actively. And the question, and the, the, the simple question is, uh, how would you d- define compassion? If you were going to define it or describe what compassion is to someone who didn't know, how would you do that? What would you say? if you're not looking for a right answer, but rather looking for your answer. How would you answer the question, what is compassion? And then see if you can come up with a simple statement, maybe a sentence, that is a definition 
of compassion for you. Is there a relatively simple statement, sentence that encapsulates it? I have uh, read that in Tibetan, the Tibetan word for compassion, it's something like nyingje, something like that, that it's supposed to literally mean noble heart. And uh, so when the heart is noble, the, um, the whole issue of how we're connected to other people, our relationship to others, is a big topic for understanding what it means to be a human being, what it means to live a meaningful life. And um, it's hard to have a meaningful life, I think, completely divorced from all people whatsoever. And, um, and so in part of this, you know, f- part of finding who what we are, discovering ourselves or the, our capacity, the depth of who we are or our nobility of who we are, is to have some kind of connection or understanding of what compassion is or having a compassionate heart. And um, so it maybe begins by exploring what you think it means. Some of you maybe have read way too many books on Buddhism (laughs) and uh, have some really pat Buddhist definitions already in hand. They're beautiful definitions, but um, sometimes if they're, you know, if it's too... Standardized, maybe it maybe it it misses something of you. Because there's so much diversity, so much difference in how we are and how we approach life, how our hearts work. I don't would, and perhaps compassion is actually different things for different people. There is no one thing at what one thing that it is. 
So, uh, but I'm going to, uh, I thought we'd do a kind of a, an exercise of sorts. Is, um, I would like to suggest that you get into groups of six. And in the group of six, go around the circle, and each of you, if you have one, offer a simple definition of compassion. It's not a time for a long story. And, but a simple definition, what do you think it is for you? And uh, don't be afraid of making it very personal. Don't be afraid of it being idiosyncratic to you. Um, um, in fact, maybe there's some way in the few moments we have before we start that you can, maybe there is some idiosyncratic personal way that, you know, that is, you know, that's maybe your way that somehow, maybe some of you are poets and you have a little poem or something. But come up with a definition, some description, definition of what... So I'll go around and offer what each of you what you think compassion is or what compassion is for you. And then uh, once you've gone around the circle and everyone's spoken, um, then perhaps you can all bow and express your appreciation and thanks. So everyone feels like that was great. Appreciate, appreciation is important. And then the next uh, task is to see if the six of you can come up with a shared definition you can all agree to. (laughs) And there might be some give and take and exploration or some expansion or opening up or finding some new way or something. And and then when we have, uh, when when you have a a decision made, you know, collective things made, then you can talk for a while together and when I have a sense that all the, know that all the groups have a definition, then we'll, gather together and we'll hear these different definitions that groups of six have come up with. So um, I've noticed in past, uh, even today, that um, not everyone <coughs> remembers how to count. <laughs> and I don't quite know, you know, what that's about. But, um, you know, six goes one, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> So, um, why don't you first uh, see if you can form groups of six, and then if, um, again, there's probably not exact number, so why don't you, the people who don't find a group easily, just come walk towards the front slowly, and you might find six as you walk, and if, you, if there's less than six, it, um, it was more cooperation and less conflict in, in agreeing to a definition of compassion. <laughs> so... Um, I think it would be wonderful to uh, hear those definitions that uh, each group came up with. So, uh, yeah, I didn't ask, hopefully there was someone in each group who was the designated reporter. We came up with the liberating gift of caring. Liberated gift ah, of caring. Liberate, liberate, liberating gift of caring. Thank you. Um, compassion is to meet suffering with the open, 
and courageous heart, touched with wisdom and respect. So the compassion is to meet suffering with an open and courageous heart, heart, touched with wisdom and respect. With wisdom and respect. Great, thank you. Ours is a heartfelt desire to benefit any sentient being in the spirit of selfless caring, empathy, and connection. Beautiful. Thank you. Our definition was the movement of the open heart in response to suffering. So how the heart responds, the open heart responds when it encounters suffering. So the the response of the open heart to suffering. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, thank you. Um, Similar, we just tried to bring it down to something simple, meeting suffering with an open heart. So meeting suffering with an open heart. Great. Warm presence that allows space for suffering. Mm, Warm presence that allows space for suffering. Um, Let's see. Recognizing and connecting with heartfelt presence and a wish for the relief of the suffering. Connecting with heartfelt presence and wishing for a relief of the suffering. We wanted to get that in there too. (laughs) We wanted to get everything in there. (laughs) Please. We talked about it though, you know, because we can't, we know we can't relieve the suffering, but yet there's a, there's a desire or a wish to relieve it. Yes, beautiful. So, uh, you know, the word compassion, you know, People go back to the Latin roots of compassion or the roots of it often say, you know, it's with suffering. Passion meaning kind of suffering. But passion in colloquial English also means a very strong desire. So the idea was strong desire. So. so we struggled with compassion for a while and gave it up and went straight to Karuna. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and and it's it's kind of inelegant, but in the same family with everybody else's. Karuna is a fully present, open-hearted response to the suffering of others without barriers or reservations. For example, judgment, an effort to fix it, or pity, and without drowning in it. Um, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Karuna, a fully present, open-hearted response to the suffering of others without barriers or reservations. The barriers or reservations could be judgment, an effort to fix it, pity, and without drowning in it. Mm. Beautiful. Is that all the groups?
Yes, we. Oh, one more, one more here. We had a, our process was the uh, conclusion, but uh, uh, we came up with eight words. Uh, uh, we first of all we distinguished it from mudita, which is to feel the joy of our, others and get high off of that. <laughs> so, uh, sharing and caring, suffering and buffering, connecting and reflecting. Abiding and responding. Mm. It's beautiful. Unless someone wants the group wants to add something. So anybody wants to add anything from the, from your group or definition wise? I think it's quite beautiful to get all that. And like someone said, uh, maybe Marcy, about the family, the same family, and the idea that uh, <clears throat> there's a variety of movements of the heart that are in the same family of compassion but maybe compassion is more than one thing and we don't have to kind of if we insist that it has to be one thing then perhaps we do our, our heart a disservice because who, who knows how the heart's supposed to respond at any given time in as many possible ways so it was great to get all these different variety and ways and I loved it yes Can't put it in words. <laughs> um, the warm presence that allows the space for suffering, in which there's a possibility for more space to arise, and in that space, relief may be found, and in that relief, joy. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. So, anybody wants a few words about what it was like to do that uh, discussion, to explore it together? Was that interesting, useful? Was it kind of... It was actually very funny because, on the one hand, none of us could really put it into words, but we cared a lot about it. We're struggling, and none of us quite knows what we want, but we know what we don't want. Beautiful. But in the end, I think it worked. Great for everyone. I like I like it. I don't know what you meant by we all cared a lot, but to care a lot about the compassion, maybe not quite know what it is, but to really feel that's important to explore. That's a beautiful thing. Well, I think we realized as we were trying to distill it down and agree we needed compassion <laughs> for what we were going through. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so we were in the same group, um, but I think that this exercise really drove home what you were saying is that it is really different for everyone, but in its different, it's still very, in its difference, it's still very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just in what you had said that I think in my, in my experience, it, most of these things, there aren't really words to put to it, but that usually the heart knows how to respond mm-hmm. appropriately and to trust that. Um, so. Nice. 
Okay, so um, I think I'd like to do two more things today. So in terms of the Brahma Vihara of compassion, you know, that's usually is often associated with the practice of, of loving, of compassion. And, and we haven't done much of it in terms of the formal practice that sometimes can be done. And uh, I thought we would maybe wait for next time to do that. This is kind of setting the stage, preparing the ground, and getting you familiar or kind of reflecting and thinking about this whole compassion and your relationship to it. So I would like to tell two stories <clears throat> as part of this finding. So I'll tell the first one, we'll have a little bit of discussion, to, and then we'll uh, take a break, and then we'll come back and I'll tell you the second story and we'll have some discussion about it. So some of you know the first story because uh, some of you, I guess, are, have been in the chaplaincy program, I think, maybe not, you were here. Uh, yes, so we, we give this to the chaplaincy students um, to, you know, to reflect on and to actually have to write paper on this story because we think it's a useful one for people who are going to do spiritual caregiving to consider this. So it's, uh, it, we call, the title of this story is called Crying With and that gives you a little bit of a maybe entry point for the story. Crying with. And, um, and how the story goes, a story from Japan, uh, I think back some centuries perhaps. And there was a, um, a teenager in the village, teenage boy, who was going the wrong way with his life. He was hanging out with scoundrels and criminals and thieves in the village and was drinking a lot and it just seemed like he was, his life was not going in the right direction at all. And his father was quite worried about him. His father had tried all kinds of things to try to intervene, to try to change the direction the boy was going. His father was concerned he was, was going to, you know, this was going to be a disaster. And so after trying whatever he could, you know, nothing worked, as sometimes happens when parents try to, you know, ch- change their kids. And uh, so I, in somewhat desperation, he went to the local uh, Zen teacher went to his little temple and he said to the local priest, he said, could you please help? You know, he explained the situation and said, can you, something you can do. And the priest said, um, well, why don't the two of you come for tea tomorrow? And so the, the father felt quite hopeful. I mean, this sounded pretty good. I mean, it sounded like the Zen master had offered to help and the Zen master, of course, was wise and knew what to do and it would be a great solution. And um, so the son agreed to come with the father and they came the next day and they came in and took off their shoes. In Japan, you take off your shoes in the entryway and you go into the temple and it's tummy mats and usually it's a very kind of quiet, peaceful, clean environment and they sat down and, and uh, the team master the Zen master made tea and offered to them. They talked a little bit about what was going on in the village, about the weather, different things. And at some point, um, the, uh, the Zen master indicated that the tea was over, it was time to go. And the father was kind of like, you know, confused because he thought that the Zen master would intervene and say something that would really turn his son around. And um, nothing. And so they, they, they got up to leave and they went to the entryway and, 
and um, and uh, they all started putting on their shoes, including Zen Master, who was going to walk them out to the gate. And um, and I guess the Zen Master in the story apparently had laces or something on his on his sandals, and so the or someone had laces. Maybe it's maybe the the the, uh, the young boy, the young man was going to put on his shoes. So he bent down to put it on, and and the Zen Master was standing in front of him, above him, kind of, and um, and the young, the teenager, felt a tear, teardrop, fall on his cheek, fall on his face, and he looked up, and there he saw the Zen Master looking down at him, um, with kind of sorrow in his face, just, just a few tears going down, looking at the boy. And with that, the boy was changed. And he changed his ways. So what do you make of that story? How is that compassion? He didn't want to tell him what to do or judge what he was doing, but he just felt a genuine care for him. And why would that make a difference for the boy? I am inferring he felt loved. He felt loved. Okay. And perhaps realized that somebody else could see he was going in a way that would harm himself. Uh Great. Thank you. I'm just guessing here. I think that that tear, the fact that he saw the Zen master um, suffering, I think that awakened compassion in the boy. And that's what caused the change. Mm. So that so the seeing the Zen master cry somehow opened up the compassion in the boy. It opened his heart in some way, and that's what made the change. Okay? Shinkwan. Uh, well, it made me cry. <laughs> it um, it just felt like they shared their suffering. They understood each other's suffering. Mm. So in that, there was shared suffering and understood each other. And is in sharing suffering that way? Is there compassion there, or that's besides the point? It that that um, yes, I think that that there is compassion there. Thank you. When, as you were telling the story and relating how the tear was coming down, uh, and then, and then, especially when you said, and, and with that, he was transformed, I really felt a movement in my heart uh, that seemed very palpable and real, and and it's just it's so mysterious, you know, what is it that? There's something that happens in our hearts when um, 
we're in the in even the presence of telling about mm-hmm. that. Uh, I'm just marveling at it, I guess. Uh-huh. Great. Thank you. It's behind you there, on your left. All along I've been thinking about compassion as something that one person holds for another. And in that story, compassion, I think the two of them met in passion. In met in compassion. Well, so, yeah, in compassion or shared, both of them. Shared and shared in it, yes. So the Zen master shared with this. So that compassion is, is something that happens with two people. Mm. Spontaneous, maybe simultaneously or whatever. Uh, maybe that's part of its power, is that it's, uh, there's a, it comes from one, presumably. Uh-huh. But in this case, in that story, it's not clear to me it, which way it went. <laughs> good, that's good. Thank you. Yes, please, go ahead. <laughs> so I actually had wanted to send something um, that goes along with that. Um, the movement is a shared movement, and I imagine that the, that the child or the teen uh, felt that he had a place in the world and that he was able to move something or someone mm. and create something create a movement um, and so um, in that creation of a movement there is a sense of self that he might have been lacking like before a, so a sense of, of agency of being someone who can make an impact on the world mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, be, and be seen and heard and effect was important maybe thank you um, mine was, we must have been sitting. <laughs> the phrase that came up for me was, sometimes the rose needs to be told that it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. Go tell. Um, what came to mind for me was that there was a sadness that was there that by seeing it mirrored in the master, the boy was able to feel it in himself. Please, over here. Um, I think, I thought that the tear represented the uh, master's uh, recognizing suffering in the world in general, and the suffering of the boy, which was what he was doing with the with his actions what why he was acting the way he was so and, and he was silent he didn't say anything uh, because I think he understood what the effect of his words would be so um, there was sadness he cried uh, suffering the boy recognized suffering and the shared experience of that Beautiful, thank you. I saw someone over. Yeah, um, well, there were two things. The image that came up in my mind was the um, the billboards from, I guess, the 70s with the American Indian crying 
at the thought of litter by the side of the road. And the strength of that was just exactly that single tear. Not, you shouldn't do that. You know, not judgment and we have to fix this, but I'm sad to see this. Yeah, I think it was powerful. Uh, the other thing is that, um, and I know I've heard this story before, is fathers are not supposed to love. They're supposed to, a lot of fathers feel that their job is to make sure their kid is okay and become successful in society and all that. So there's all this, I'm going to straighten you out. So, so long as the father talked to his son, or even if the priest said, well, you have to do this, it becomes, we're going to fix you. And that the son could not see the pain in his father's face, probably. He could only see the obligation relationship. But by having somebody else who doesn't care whether he's a successful farmer or whatever, be able to, I think the priest was able to show him what the father maybe could not, or that he could not see in his father. That's my sense of it. Great, thank you. The way you presented the story, when they came for tea, you said it was just, it was very peaceful. And what was interesting to me, thinking about it, was that it seemed as though the impression I had of the boy's life was a lot of noise a lot of just agitation. And it just seemed to me that it just presented him with another possibility, another way to be, and that may not have been, he may not have considered as being available before. Mm. Mm. Nice. Thank you. Last one. You know, one of the things neat about these stories is that we all get something different from them. And when, when it's in the Zen tradition, when we try to nail it down, the story's lost. But, but each, one of the things I get from this story is that it's almost like discovering the four noble, or two of the four noble, I like to call them realities, uh, but in, not in the right order. Uh, sometimes people suffer because they don't know that it's okay to suffer. You know, especially teens kick and scream because they don't know that it's that some of the things they're going through is is just okay to suffer. You know, and st- instead it comes out as aversion. Right. And to see an adult suffer, you know, especially somebody considered wise, you know, it's it's not really it's compassion, but it's almost like. Him seeing the adults say, "This is okay. You know, suffering is okay." And then the change comes about when that, when he allows himself to suffer. It eventually goes away. Mm, great, that's beautiful. The idea that suffering is okay in a certain kind, of, a certain kind of way. You don't want to just make it a, you know, the banner on top of the chronicle, exactly. But uh, but yes, that. So what, you know, one of the things I think for me as I think of the story is that um, is the Zen master, hopefully, it was probably, was comfortable with the discomfort of the situation and was willing to stay present for it. And the story doesn't talk about the Zen master actually doing anything intentional. 
Some, I know some people, when they read the story, they think the Zen master was all wise and knew exactly what to do. Knew all along, this is what was needed. It was the whole strategy. And my, my feeling is that's not what the story is about. That the Zen master actually didn't have a clue. But he was willing to just be honest and show his feelings and be present, stay present and, and, um, and be with his feelings. And somehow, just uh, being, being relaxed with his feelings, maybe his suffering, was an important step in all this. And so, one of the lessons I'd like to offer from this story is that in order to cultivate karuna, in order to cultivate this very important quality in Buddhism of compassion, that one of the most useful things to do in that regard is to learn how to be relaxed with your own suffering or to relax into your suffering, to discover how to relax with it and to always be kind of recoiling from it or fixing it or doing something with it or berating yourself and telling you to stop doing that. You're going the wrong way. You know, all these things we can do is, um, is not the way to cultivate compassion. But be, have some willingness to be open to it. And starting with your own suffering, um, one of the really important connections between your suffering and compassion is that if you can relax with your, and see your own suffering when it's there, and be relaxed about it and recognize it, um, that gives you a foundation which to appreciate and see and recognize other people's suffering, learn how to be relaxed with their suffering so you don't get tense around it, learn how to be relaxed about it, and also perhaps to meet them as equals. And I like to think of the story with the boy and the Zen master that there may be a sense of equality there. That, you know, that the Zen master wasn't trying to be a Zen master. And maybe the Zen master saw himself in the boy. So by becoming familiar with their own suffering and knowing how to relax with it and be honest with it, hopefully it's easier than to be relaxed about other people's suffering. And in that relaxed space, there is room for the heart to move. And so there's a strict, intimate connection with kind of being relaxed and karuna, with compassion. And, um, and so in the beginning of the day, I talked about, um, you know, with warmth, in that context, uh, that, that um, you know, it's like petting the cat, that both, you know, both benefit, right? Your cat benefits, and you benefit from doing that nurturing thing. Hold, hold a baby, and the baby benefits, but many people benefit themselves. It's very tender and nice. So, uh, how is it that we can be compassionate to the horrible things that can happen to people in such a way that we're relaxed, in such a way that not only we're relaxed, but it allows for a certain kind of well-being? Certain kind. I don't want to say you're, you know, skipping down the street, smiling, you know, smiling and, and whistling, but certain kind of, something feels right, there's a rightness to it, the way we're present for it, as opposed to horror or distress or something like that. So one of the tasks for people who want to cultivate this karuna is not, not to cultivate compassion or karuna first, but to have, develop a wiser relationship to their own suffering and not to shy away from that. And perhaps that's what the Zen master had done and that's why he could be effective even though he didn't know how. So that's the first story. So uh, the next story I'll tell after a break. But what I'd like to ask, I, I ask what, I, what I think would be useful at this juncture is that we do the break in silence. 